Welcome to your Apple Update. I'm your host, John Sherrod. And uh, this week is kind of a special week because this month, uh, June 2020, when I'm recording this, marks 20 years uh, since I bought my first Mac. And uh, that's meant a lot to me, both in terms of the way that Apple devices have enriched me personally over two decades and just the fascination of following um, this amazing company and the, the people that work there and the products that they've churned out over that length of time. Um, but I've also been very blessed to have been able to uh, have a, a, a career spanning the last two decades um, based around Apple and Apple products. And um, so it's been really fun to look back on that because you just there just aren't too many things in life uh, that you get the opportunity to, to look back um, at the kind of impact it's had on you. And, you know, also I'm, I'm uh, a couple years away from being 40 years old and, you know, I'm getting to the age where you can kind of look back at 20 years. Um, where you're, you know, you were still an adult uh, 20 years ago, and and uh, and just kind of see what your life has been like through this, and um, so it's been interesting to do that. And um, there's really a couple things that 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 turned me on to the Mac that kind of made me fall in love with Apple. Um, we didn't have Macintosh computers in my home growing up. Um, our first uh, computer that we had was basically an IBM PC clone. Um, didn't have a hard drive. It had a couple of five and a quarter floppy drives. Um, it was something that my dad bought when he, uh, went back to college to get his MBA degree in the late eighties. And, uh, you know, he talked since then about the fact that, you know, he got exposed to Macintosh computers on campus at that time. And, you know, of course they had a graphic user interface and, you know, things like scalable fonts and just things that were amazing, especially at the time compared to what the personal computer had been up to that point, but he just didn't have $2,500 or more to spend, on a personal computer. So I went with the cheaper option. And so we grew up with, uh, DOS and windows PCs when I was a kid. Um, I had an aunt who, um, worked for a couple of different PC manufacturers, um, in the eighties and nineties. And so we would kind of have this thing where she would get us PCs that were older, that those companies were getting rid of to their employees. And so she would get them and then give them to us. And so we were mostly going through these hand-me-down computers that were, uh, pretty slow even for their time. And, and, um, I had been exposed to Apple computers without really understanding what the difference was. You know, it was what, kind of the classic thing is that in elementary school, there were, uh, opportunities where I would use uh, a Macintosh or probably even an Apple II for some stuff when I was real young. Um, and so I was kind of dimly aware that Apple computer was a thing and that there was something different about them. Um, but didn't really, didn't really have any conception of what the PC industry was like. And, uh, it, it really wasn't, you know, but, but I knew that I didn't like windows. There was something about windows and Microsoft as a company and like Bill Gates as a person that just never, uh, was appealing to me. And it, it was really two things, uh, that happened around 1998 or so that really, I mean, it's not too dramatic to say it changed the course of my life. Um, and they both happened around that time around 1998. The, and I don't know which one came first. Um, but the first one that they'll, that I'll mention uh, of the two was that, um, uh, we, we, you know, I was, uh, in the waiting room of the doctor's office just for a standard, like yearly checkup. And I was sitting there on the couch in the waiting room and I just looked over and there on the table was like a stack of magazines. And I just, in my, I don't remember if I flipped through them, but in my mind, it was just kind of sitting there, but there was a magazine that had a picture on the cover of that original iMac that was released that year in 1998 you know, the, the Bondi blue transparent, uh, plastic iMac all in one computer. 
And uh, to say that was like nothing I'd ever seen is an understatement. It was like nothing anybody had ever seen because nobody had designed a, a computer that I'd ever seen that wasn't kind of a boring beige box. Uh, this was something that clearly had some style and color, and it was eye-catching uh, and distinctive because it was an all-in-one computer, and uh, you know, pretty much all the other desktops that ran Windows didn't look like that at all. And of course, you know, the color and all that stuff. So it was very eye-catching. It was like, whoa, what is this? So that was one thing. And then the second thing that was kind of around the same time is one Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I was at home flipping around the channels, um, got to PBS, and stumbled upon a documentary um, that was made by Robert X. Cringely called Triumph of the Nerds. And uh, it was all about the history of the personal computer uh, from the original Altair up through the late 90s and, you know, at that time, the early internet era. Um, and of course, it told the story of uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft and some of these other important players in the PC industry at that time. And of course, it told the story of Apple and Steve Jobs. And uh, to my knowledge, I, at, at that point, I had not had any exposure uh, to Steve Jobs, the person. And that was really, um, really a, a fascinating, I was completely engrossed. First of all, uh, Robert X. Cringely had a great, you know, narrating style, uh, hosting style for that documentary. And the way that he told the story was fantastic, but was just really drawn to Steve Jobs and his charisma and his passion for what he did and his whole mission that he saw what he was doing as something to change the world. It wasn't just about running a business um, and just was completely, uh, completely engrossed by that. And so uh, it wasn't until um, June 2000, uh, the summer before I was going off to college that I got my first Mac, but I spent that next, you know, year and a half or so between when I saw the, when those two things introduced me to Apple, um, you know, pouring through Apple's website and, you know, watching the videos from Apple events, the Steve Jobs keynotes on these little, you know, postage stamp size QuickTime videos uh, across our 56K modem and, you know, reading Macworld Magazine and going to the CompUSA and playing with the, the PowerBook G3s and, uh, and the iMacs and that sort of thing there in the store. And I was hooked. And so I knew I was going to go off to college with a, with a Mac, um, you know, and, and certainly thought it was going to be an iMac that whole time. And, uh, and then in 1999, Apple introduced the iBook and it was basically like taking the, the iMac and making a laptop version of it. And, um, and that was what I knew I wanted to take with me. So that was, that was it. I got an iBook. Um, I wasn't wild about the colors of those, those original iBooks, the blueberry and tangerine colors, but, um, uh, a little bit later, they introduced something called the iBook Special Edition, and that's what I got. And it was, you know, the, the, the color they called graphite. It was gray and looked a little more serious. Um, but you know, it's the specs when you look back on them now are laughable because it was a, a 366 megahertz G3 processor, and um, it was, um, you know, it had a single USB port, a 10100 Ethernet port, a 56k modem. A uh, six gigabyte hard drive, I think 64 megabytes of RAM, a CD-ROM drive, no 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 DVD and no uh, CD burning capability, just a CD-ROM drive, uh, screen resolution of 800 by 600. I mean, this is a dinosaur by modern modern standards, but uh, but it was great. Ran Mac OS 9, um, but uh, but it was fantastic, and that that started the journey. And when I got to college, um, I went to a college that puts a real big emphasis on students working on campus. And so nearly every student that goes there has a job on campus. And um, 
you know, when I was talking to them about what job I would do, I said, honestly, I'll do just about any job you want me to do except grounds crew because I have a lot of grass allergies. And uh, so, you know, then I get back home and then later in the mail, I get what my uh, on-campus job assignment is. And what is it? Grounds crew. And you know, so my only out of that was to find another on-campus job uh, before I got to campus that wasn't that. And so I applied for this uh, program that they had at the school, this apprenticeship program, where they would take in about 20 students a year um, and let them work alongside the professional IT staff at the college uh, who would train them. And they'd pay for you to get your A-plus certification and you get to work on uh, on the actual faculty staff and student computers on campus. And uh, I had no IT background or, or really any pre-interest in that, but um, but, uh, but it seemed like a fun thing to do. And I signed up and was accepted into the program. And, uh, you know, that first semester was all about getting that A plus certification and working the help desk and, you know, answering the phones and learning how to build a PC and that sort of thing. But of course I knew I wanted to work, uh, with Macintosh computers as much as possible. And they had kind of different tracks you could go on, uh, once you kind of got through that first phase. And so by the second semester, I had chosen uh, the Mac track and was working with the uh, Macintosh technician uh, on campus. And he uh, taught me a lot and kind of turned me loose to go work on uh, tickets for uh, the Macintosh computers on campus. And we, hey, this was a small college, and we, but we were about uh, 20% Macintosh computers as far as the faculty and staff. And so I had a lot to work on. And, and um, you know, because I got there, of course, there were you know, computers on campus uh, from throughout the 90s. And so I got exposed to a lot of different types of uh, Macintosh computers, uh, Quadras and Performas and, um, you know, uh, the G3 all-in-one that Apple released before the iMac and um, just all sorts of things. And, and, you know, going all the way back to Mac OS 6 in some cases, as far as the, the operating system. And that was great. And that introduced me to IT work. And I fell in love with working working IT at that point. And, um and of course, I also got to, to to learn more about the Mac, and and that was also an incredible era for the Mac. You know, right after that is when Mac OS 10 came out, and I was one of like three or four people on campus that had the Mac OS 10 public beta, you know, and installed that, and uh, just really great times. And you know, one of the things that was key to the success of the Mac, um, there's a lot of things. Of course, you know, Steve Jobs' vision and knowing exactly what the right product was, and of course. Uh, Mac OS 10 and the transformational operating system that was, but um, but you know uh, a lot of college students in the 2000s uh, bought Apple computers and brought them to college, and then when they were done with college, uh, they went into the workforce and started wanting to have Macintosh computers there, and uh, and and I really attribute a lot of the success of Apple to that, and I was kind of on the very early bell curve of that wave, so early that unfortunately when I graduated there weren't a whole lot of IT jobs related to supporting Macs. And uh, so, um, you know, I tried to find a job in IT and just wasn't successful and wasn't sure what to do with myself, ultimately decided to go back to grad school. And um, and that took us, that took my wife and I to uh, the Nashville, Tennessee area where we live today. And, um, and uh, they were opening a new Apple store. And this was still less than four years from when the first Apple stores uh, debuted. And, uh, and so I joined Apple and spent seven years, uh, seven years working for Apple and then, uh, left that in 2012 and, um, you know, landed an amazing job, uh, working in IT, uh, in IT, uh, supporting Macs and, and I've been doing that ever since. And, uh, 
absolutely thrilled to have been able to do that. And, and uh, so it's just been fun to look back at, uh, at 20 years. And I wrote a piece on my blog that goes into even more detail about what, uh, that journey was like. So you can check that out at johnshera.net. But, uh, yeah, fun. It's, uh, been, it's, it's going to be hard to top the first 20 years of, of, uh, you know, being a close watcher of Apple, but, uh, definitely looking forward to seeing what the future holds. So that's, uh, you know, that's the last 20 years of the Mac, but, but, you know, we've got a lot to look forward to for the future and we're, and we're about to step into that new future really quickly. Um, as I record this now, we're about a week, a little over a week away from WWDC 2020 Apple's worldwide developer conference. And, um, that's always an important time of the year because that's when Apple, uh, really unveils to the public what the key features are going to be of the uh, the big operating system releases uh, in the fall. Um, and so that's always exciting for anybody watching Apple. But this year in particular, um, it's probably going to be one of the, the big years we look back on because the rumors are hot and heavy that Apple is about to transition away from using Intel chips in its Macintosh computers in favor of ARM-based chips that Apple designs itself in-house. And uh, Apple's been using ARM chips in all of its other computing devices, the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple TV, the Apple Watch. Um, even in the Mac, um, they've used some ARM chips for some secondary processing, like the, the processor that controls the touch bar and the, and the uh, touch ID sensor and the secure enclave um, in the MacBook Pros of the last few years. Um, those are ARM chips. Um, but Apple's never done it for the whole Macintosh computer. But um, I think the time is is here. We've been hearing kind of rumors about this for a couple of years, and uh, the rumors have just you know picked up in intensity. And you can always there's always those moments where you can really see a lot of smoke, and where there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, when it comes to Apple rumors, there's been a lot of smoke about this. So I fully expect that. And the reason they're going to do it is is kind of similar to the reasons that they switched to Intel away from the PowerPC chip 15 years ago. And, um, and that's because they're just able to get so, so much more power per watt out of the ARM chips that they're developing. And uh, they don't want to be beholden to Intel's timetable and roadmap because there've been times in the recent few years where Intel hasn't had the chips ready uh, on Apple's schedule that are appropriate for the specific uh, applications that uh, that Apple has for them in terms of what computer they want to put them in. And uh, that's caused a lot of frustration for Apple. And then those delays have ultimately caused a lot of frustration for Mac users. And uh, just in general, Apple always prefers to have as much control um, over the entire process from you know manufacturing all the way up to distribution. So uh, it, it makes a lot of sense why they would want to do this. And uh, they, if they're doing it now, and it seems like they are, they must feel like they are ready to deliver um, something that can, you know, truly power the the Macintosh and make it, um, you know, make it viable and competitive with, you know, other PCs out there running chips from Intel and AMD and other companies. So uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. And I wrote a piece the other day kind of talking about this and, you know, just asking a few questions. And the first one is, you know, will the entire Mac line make the transition away from Intel into ARM? Um, it's entirely possible that they might say only bring the lower end um, uh, Macintoshes over to ARM and still still reserve the Intel chips for their higher end workstation uh, PCs. And um, or when I say PCs, I mean personal computer, not of course Windows PCs, but that they might uh, reserve those higher end workstation type tasks for the Intel processor. 
so that's a possibility, but I kind of don't think Apple would would announce this transition unless it was planning to transition the entire line over. So in some form or fashion, I do feel like over some period of time, Apple will transition the entire Mac line uh, over to its own design armed arm chips. And uh, so, of course, we'll have to wait and see what kind of time frame we're looking at here. Uh, when they did the transition from PowerPC to Intel, they announced the transition at WWDC in June of 2005. They started shipping Intel-based Macs in January of 2006. And after 18 months, they were essentially done with the transition. So it'll be curious to see if there's a similar transition in mind here. And we'll just have to see. I guess I, I still think they'll transition the entire line. I guess the only thing that gives me pause is you know, they just, um, a few months ago, announced the all-new, completely redesigned Mac Pro that had spent a couple of years in development. Um, and there's also some pretty heavy rumors that Apple will be releasing a new iMac, possibly at WWDC, that uh, has a pretty radical redesign that kind of brings it similar to the design language of the, the current iPad Pro. So you might see, uh, you know, very, essentially no bezels and um, maybe without that chin that we've seen on the iMac uh, for the last uh, 15 years at this point. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Um and uh, we're going to find out really soon. Speaking of, and the reason why they're, they're going to announce it now is that they want to have developers uh, begin getting their apps ready because, um, you know, we're talking about a completely different um, processor architecture. And so developers are going to have to, at the very least, recompile their apps for this new processor. Um, and there may be even more extensive rewriting of apps necessary depending on, you know, depending on dependencies and what's going on under the hood of those apps. And so they want developers to have as much time as possible. Um, so that also brings up the question, will there be some kind of pre-release hardware for developers? Um, again, when Apple made the switch to Intel in 2005, they um, made some, um, some, some Mac hardware running Intel available to developers basically at that time that they could rent and then had to turn back into Apple later. And these were basically using the shells of the Power Mac G5, but with, you know, Intel boards and Intel chips under the hood. And so the question is, will there be something similar with this transition? And if so, what, what would it look like? It's kind of hard to imagine that they would do that with the Mac Pro, which would be the closest thing to the, the you know, the Power Mac G5 that, that they used the shell from at the time. I've seen some speculation that they might use iPad Pros since those are already running on ARM uh, ARM chips. But it's hard for me to imagine that they would do that because uh, it's hard for me to imagine an I, that they would give developers an iPad running Mac OS. Um, so, uh, well, I guess that's possible. I, I kind of I doubt it. If I had to guess, I would say it's, they would probably use um, something like the iMac form factor or the Mac mini form factor with uh, new, new boards with ARM chips. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. That's definitely one of the big questions, though. And then kind of the last question I had was, uh, it, you know, when these new ARM-based Macs come out and are available for consumers to buy maybe as early as, as early next year, um, are they going to be able to emulate the Intel chip um, so that you can run uh, Mac apps that were written for the Intel chip um, on these new ARM-based Macs? Uh, they, they had that when Apple made the switch from PowerPC to Intel. They had um, a technology called Rosetta, which enabled the Intel Mac to run PowerPC Mac apps. 
And that was really, I feel like, necessary for that transition because that way you could still run all the apps that you had always run, even without them having been recompiled and redeveloped for the Intel chip. Um, and, uh, you know, they didn't run quite as efficiently or as fast, but you could run them while you waited for those developers to get, uh, you know, recompiled Intel native versions of their apps out for the Mac. And so that's really the question is, are they going to do something similar this time? Um, cause if they don't, the alternative is that you can only run apps written for the ARM processors. And, uh, there certainly will be many developers who get their apps ready in time whenever these new Macs ship. But there will be others who who don't, and it takes them months or a year to get their apps ready. Um, or possibly some don't ever update them at all because they you know they just don't have the resources to do it, or they're going out of business, or or, or the app is discontinued. But maybe still people still rely on it. So um, that's going to be really interesting to see. I still would bet that they will have some kind of emulation because again, that seems like a necessary way to maintain continuity because they don't want to. Um, you know, because, you know, basically if they handle this transition right, it's going to set them up well for the future because they will control their entire hardware roadmap and they'll get some real power um, and energy efficiencies out of the ARM architecture where you'll have faster Macs and more power efficient Macs and better battery life and that sort of thing. But obviously if they, if they mishandle this transition, then they could uh, basically torpedo the Mac and, or at least set it back many years. So I think that they would want to have some kind of continuity, some way to continue uh, running the existing apps and uh, not make people have to wait for uh, developers to update update their apps. But we're going to see. Those are my three big burning questions as we head into this. And we'll see uh, next week when I do the next episode, we'll see if, uh, if there's been any more rumors leak out that give us any clearer sense of, of kind of where this is going. So we'll certainly be waiting and watching. Last bit of news this week is uh, today, actually, Apple announced the release date for Greyhound, which is the new Tom Hanks uh, World War II naval drama film that was originally going to be released by Sony Pictures in theaters before COVID-19, you know, completely changed our lives for several months. And instead, uh, Apple wound up picking up the rights and it's going to debut that on Apple TV Plus. And they just announced today that it'll be on July 10th. And so this represents a big move for Apple um, because this is sort of their biggest Hollywood move. It's actually buying the rights and the distribution for a major Hollywood film with a major Hollywood star attached to it. Um, so uh, it's it, this was already a movie I was looking forward to seeing this year, even before Apple had anything to do with it, because I just love uh, World War II movies and um, and naval films and submarine films and that kind of thing. So looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, a lot of us were kind of wondering how is Apple going to kind of brand it? And I think we got our, our answer to that because Apple released uh, their own version of the trailer for it today. And at the beginning of it, it has an Apple original film. So that's going to be how Apple is going to brand these kind of things going forward. Uh, it's not surprising, similar to the way that Netflix uh, does things, even though they didn't produce it necessarily, they bought the rights to it, but they still put like a Netflix original uh, at the beginning. So, uh, so yeah, July 10th is when we can see that. Well, that's it for this episode of your Apple update. Again, I'm your host, John Sherrod. Um, I write regularly about Apple, usually four or five times a week on my blog at johnsherrod.net. That's S H E R R O D. You can also find me on Twitter at J W Sherrod. And, um, you can also, if you go to your you can support the show by uh, kind of signing up to be a recurring donor at 99 cents, 4.99, or 9.99 a month. 
and uh, that that helps a tremendous amount uh, with the show. And uh, you know, would love to have you come on board in that way. Um, and again, you can do that at yourapplelupdate.com. I'm your host, John Sherrod, and we'll see you next time.